Down Syndrome Queensland are the peak body for intellectual disability in Queensland. We drive change, support inclusion and are on a quest for equality so that people with intellectual disabilities can take their rightful place as valuable members of the community. Down Syndrome Queensland also provides practical and emotional support, comfort and opportunities to people with intellectual disability, their families and support networks, particularly in regional areas. DSQ supports an inclusive environment for people with an intellectual disability, which allows them to live their best lives. We believe it is important to respect the rights of parents to choose the development path that is best for their loved one. DSQ is here to support them along the way. To find out more about how you can help, to volunteer or to support the work of Down Syndrome Queensland, go to downsyndrome.org.au forward slash QLD. We acknowledge the First Nations people as the traditional custodians of the land we are on today. We acknowledge and pay respect to all elders past, present and emerging. The Now in the Future podcast is an exciting way of sharing members' stories of opportunities, challenges and provide support and expert advice for Down Syndrome community. Down Syndrome Queensland's vision is to support, advocate for empower people with Down Syndrome to take their rightful places as valuable and contributing members of their community both now into the future. Welcome to today's episode of the Now in the Future podcast. It is the support services team today and we're going to have a chat about a lot of the frequently asked questions that we received throughout 2022 from our families in relation to education. And we'll be talking about this across the span of whether your little one is getting ready to go off to school, maybe they're transitioning to a new school or perhaps they're going on to high school. So today from the support services team, you'll be hearing from myself, Tanya and Isabel. We both um, talk with families across the state over a range of inquiries, but one of the more common ones we hear from is education-related queries. So we thought as one year winds down and a lot of families are preparing to send their young people off to a new school year in 2023, whether that's for the first time ever or perhaps just for a new year level or maybe a whole new school, we thought it might just be good to revisit some of those really common questions that we hear. So, Isabel, <laughs> I might throw over to you. What do you think one of the most common things we've heard this year relates to? I think one of the most common things is, um, you know, choosing a school and that decision that you have to make um, initially as to what school would be best for your little person. Um, we all have that decision to make mm. um, and for some people it's a little bit trickier um, than it is for other people. Um, so when we're looking at choosing a school um, for our little person or, or bigger person if they're heading off to high school, what are some of the key things, I guess, that we should be looking for um, in terms of the school and what environment would be the most supportive, I guess, for our, our young people? I don't know about you, Isabel, but I know a question that I hear frequently is 
I just want to know the right school, the one that all the kids with Down syndrome should go to or where they've had lots of kids with Down syndrome go through before. Do you hear that one? All the time, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I would imagine that, like me, you often have to break the news gently that there is no such one perfect school for every student with Down syndrome across Queensland. And nor should there be, really, um, if we're looking at it from an inclusive education point of view, Um yeah, well, the whole point of that, isn't it, is that and all the legislation that has developed over the years around supporting it, every child's right to access um, an education on the same basis as all of their same age peers in their local community and whatever their you know chosen school setting is. So, yeah, you're right. It, it actually isn't about one particular school doing this a certain way or perceived to be doing it better. It's actually about, I guess... What you said earlier, every family has a whole range of considerations that they look into when they're choosing a school for any of their children. Hmm. Hmm. So when we look at what kind of schooling we've got available in Queensland, um, we're looking at state-based schools um, as a first port of call, I guess. Um, then we've got um, Catholic education um, and then more independent um, schooling options as well. Yeah, so I guess across all three of those types of settings, the same legislation applies, doesn't it? Like, so, you know, from an overall perspective across Australia, we've got that Disability Discrimination Act of 1992, which means that any person can access an education, you know, in any setting um, on this, you know, on the same basis as anyone else. They can't be discriminated against on the basis of their disability. There are some small exceptions around that and we can talk about those in a moment. Um, but then I guess moving on from that, there's the Disability Standards for Education, which came in in 2005, and that basically interprets the legislation in the Disability Discrimination Act specifically for an education setting. Um, and I guess from more of that human rights perspective, we also have the United Nations Convention on the Rights for People with Disabilities in General Article 24 was introduced a few years ago, I think 2015, which talks specifically about, you know, children with disability or people with disabilities and their ability to access an education on the same basis as anybody else. I guess the take-home point from what you were saying with all those different settings is it's the same laws that apply regardless but some of those settings you talked about some faith-based schools or independent schools they may have different enrollment procedures um, and they might have some different criteria based around that but at the end of the day you can't exclude a child from being enrolled purely on the basis of their disability um, but there are some clauses in that legislation which talk about unjustifiable hardship or um, other, yeah, things like that, that we can put some things in the show notes around around when it might be lawful for, for a school setting or educational facility to say, no, we can't accommodate the needs of that particular student with a disability. So if we're going to start from the beginning, um, whether you've got a little person who is maybe your first child um, and you're looking for a school environment for that person, for that little person, um, when we are first looking at a school, the first thing I guess that we're going to do is perhaps look at our local state school. Um, so a lot of the local state schools in Queensland do have catchments. Um, mm. So we can put a link in the show notes again um, for finding out what your local school catchment is. Mm. Um, so if a family is deciding to go and have a look at that local 
state school. Um, what are some things that they should be looking for um, at the school um, mm. when trying to make a decision if that's a good environment for their little person? Yeah, yeah. And I think um, and some of the points we're just about to cover now, um, I'll, I'll say two things. One, we do have a checklist that you can get off our website that um, summarises this and we can put the, that linked in our show notes. Um, and some of these questions are probably things that you are, might be useful regardless of whether it's a state school or an independent school or a faith-based school, whatever the case might be. But absolutely check out the catchment first and um, note that they've just recently in the last few weeks actually some areas of Queensland, those have been redefined yet again. So I think if you're someone who researches, I sometimes actually have families whose little one is not even one year old and they're already starting to think about schools. And um, that's well and good if you know that you're going to stay in that local area for a fairly stable period of time or what have you. But I guess always go to those catchment areas first. And not all schools are enrollment managed in that way, but the majority are. And first and foremost, I think start by looking at what is your local catchment school um and then I guess you you mentioned if this is the first ever time you're dealing with schools so we're just going to presume that the child with Down syndrome is either your eldest child or maybe your only child at that point um we always say absolutely go and have a look at those schools get a feel for it are you noticing lots of diversity when you walk around the school grounds are you are you noticing lots of um you know, children being encouraged to join in together. You know, you, you you want to be looking for everyone doing, you know, the same things on the same basis. Not necessarily all doing exactly the same thing, but that you're not seeing little pockets of students sitting away doing separate kind of things. And that goes for the playground activities as well. You want to be sort of seeing what's happening in that space. Um, sometimes it can be helpful to go on your local community page and get a vibe for, you know, what other families, even families without a child with disability, what their sense of their school community is like, because it is a community. Um, You possibly don't always realise that, but your little person potentially could be there in that one setting for up to seven years, depending on your life circumstances. So um, it is going to be, you know, a community, not just for your child, but for you as well. So, you know, go with your gut instinct go along to any fates or fairs or any little activities, even if it's just voting at the local school, get a feel for that. Have a good look on their website too. Like you can often tell a whole lot from the kinds of pictures that are displayed. You know, if it's possible to see a local school newsletter, that that can give you a vibe for how the school celebrates, you know, um, diversity and, and just all things to do with their community. Um, and when you're taking your little one on that school tour. And we would encourage that. It's really important to, you know, really be guided by your little one's sort of reaction in those spaces as well. Take notice of whether the staff and the people in that community are even interacting with your little person and including them in things and just communicating at their level or that kind of thing because that can really help you get a feel for the culture of the school as well. Um, And I think, I don't know about you, Isabel, but... Do you often get asked whether, um, or or people will say, oh, we found a school we like it, but they've never had a student with Down syndrome before. I'm just not really sure. I feel like we need to go with someone who's done this before. Yeah, it's something that we hear a lot of. Yeah, I hear that a lot too. And I just, the reality is there aren't very many people born with Down syndrome in Queensland anymore. So we wouldn't expect to see every school 
having multiple students with with Down syndrome um, at any one point in time. So um, I guess it's not what we want to see in a local classroom setting is like a mix of little people that reflects, you know, the diversity at large in the community, you know. Um, And when you consider that around one in five people in Australia would identify as living with a disability, then you would imagine that every classroom, there will be a range of little ones in there that might live with a a known or perhaps as yet unknown, you know, disability. Um, But that doesn't mean we should see three or four or five other children with Down syndrome in that classroom. Um, And occasionally that does occur, like if if it's just that coincidental, this many people live in that area, but... We have one school like that, don't we? We do. (laughs) (laughs) So it does happen from time to time, but it's definitely not something we say to families, you should go seeking that out. Um, Because as with any other student in that classroom, Isabel, like every person with Down syndrome is a unique individual, as is every other student in that class. And so um, I think sometimes there's that myth that if people have done this before, they know what they're doing and probably they did they maybe they came to getting a really good understanding for that particular student with down syndrome that went ahead of yours but that doesn't mean that that student had the same kind of you know um i guess personality you know strengths and and challenges as as the next child with down syndrome so we can't assume that having done it once before means it's a little bit like when you're a parent, <laughs> just because the second or third child comes along doesn't mean that you're all over how this one's going to roll. So, like, we have to assume the same. Um, yeah, so I guess we, I, I don't know about you, but I always reassure people, don't worry, if you're getting a really good feel for this school and it's ticking a lot of those other boxes, then the whole having, had, haven't, having not had experience with Down syndrome before, that's okay because... It's all about does the school seem approachable? Do they sound like they are happy to learn more? Um, are they happy to link in with our education team if needed? Um, and if the answers are yes to all of those things, then probably you've answered your own question. So we've tried to be a little bit proactive in the conversation so far around choosing a school. In the, I guess, in the interests of just helping prepare parents for some of those trickier conversations that we often hear about through our families across Queensland. Shall we go through some of the, um, I guess, common points or barriers that we hear from families around that point of school enrolment, Isabel? Yeah, I think one of the big ones that we hear about um, is funding, isn't it? Mm. What kind of support is my child going to get? And I guess coming from an environment like a childcare centre where they will receive that sort of more one-on-one support or that that closer support going into a classroom setting where there's, you know, 20-odd mm. children mm. Um, to one parent, to one teacher um, and maybe a, um, you know, support teacher if they're lucky. Mm. Um that leads to certain concerns um, from a parent as mm. to how is my child going to be supported? How are they going to be their best me mm. in this situation? Um, they're going to need a one-on-one aid or support that's really close to them. So I think one of the ones we hear a lot about is, um, you know, my, my child's going to need a one-on-one mm. um, one-on-one assistance um, and the school's are obviously aren't funded in that way. Mm. Um, and I guess I should point out, Childcare centres aren't either, but it just appears that way. Like the inclusion support funding is never attached to that child, but it is there to pro- provide bigger staff ratios in the classroom. But often, I think, because like you say, it's a much more closed down environment 
and there's a room with a set amount of children, yeah. Yep. But, yes, schools definitely aren't set up for that one-on-one funding. Mm. So what's some of the most common things that you hear about funding? What are the big mm. concerns that we hear about? I think, um, and this can be viewed as a positive and a negative, right? So sometimes when schools go, uh, when parents go to a school interview and sort of try saying from the outset, look, my kid's going to need, my, my child runs all the time or my child does this or my child needs full support with this, that or the other, um, schools will often kind of react a little bit defensively and say, well, we need you to understand we can't possibly do that. We don't have funding. And without going into great, great details, we um, we can put some links in the show notes. There is different categories of funding that schools can access, but they can't, they may not always be able to have it in place when your child starts in prep because a lot of the time it's based on different um, data sets that get I guess, um, done through surveys throughout the year. NCCD data is one, for instance, where um, whatever type of school setting your young person's in, there is certain um, buckets of funding that, you know, can be accessed for students with a disability. The, the reality is, though, there's, you know, only ever going to be certain amounts of that. Um, and like you said, it's very rare and, and often not actually needed for that child to have a one-on-one teacher aid by their side at all stages. And in fact, that's it goes against what we're advocating for around inclusion in a classroom as well, because it's not really helping that child feel a part of um, the rest of the class. So, or even encouraging them to work more independently and, um, and yeah, sometimes what we see inadvertently is an over-reliance on that teacher aid it, rather than it being what started off as some support while the child learns some new skills. So it's one of those really tricky conversations. Families find it really confronting because they find it um, hard when they go and see a prep campus, for instance, with, you know, wide open spaces right next to a big open oval or maybe the school is right near a big main road and they, they go, oh, my gosh, this is never going to work. My little person's going to be out that door in two seconds and, you know, you're going to have to keep the doors locked and then schools start the conversations around, well, we, we can't fund someone to be watching them all the time. We also can't lock all the children in the classroom. So it gets to that really awkward um, conversation. But I think it's not always money that is needed to, to include a child to ensure safety to solve the issues. Um, there's lots of different strategies that schools can try. Um, and I think if you're getting the sense at the point of that first contact with the school that if the conversation is starting from a place of money, then I guess that would be a, a sign that maybe, um, yeah, that to, to be asking a bit more around how they are planning to include your child. And, um, yeah, I think it's just one of those things to be mindful of. Um, money is not the answer to everything and it's certainly it's not going to be an infinite resource either that schools can tap into. Um, and that that's tricky for families sometimes to get their head around. Um, and then similarly there's often a perception that really expensive resources are needed to fully include that child, but often schools have access to um, equipment loan library sort of setups if if particular equipment might be needed for your child. Um, you know, they it could just be that they need to access some training around using a particular device if your if your student uses a particular um, communication method or a device to communicate. 
um, over time everyone's skills and like I think we have to let go of it that student starting that year with everything perfect in place like everyone needs some time to adjust and learn and grow and develop um, it's okay the, it, the more important thing is that growth mindset that everyone is reconvening regularly going we've we tried this and we that's working well we're not sure about this strategy let's try something else it, that's really more important than the perfect place the perfect location the perfect staff in place you know like there's yeah we're making it harder than it needs to be if we're coming from that from the beginning um and i think understanding what true inclusion is is another thing that we hear um so i think sometimes there's that perception that um just being in a particular setting is inclusion but actually it's about participating on the same basis as their age similar peers you know they might be participating in accessing the curriculum at a different level but they are working on the same tasks they're working on the same things they're making friends with the children in their class they're not necessarily being taken away for little um, intensive lessons in different parts of the school um, in units elsewhere or what have you so I think that's the um, that's sometimes a big learning curve for families new to the school system because in their head they might perceive that that's what their young person actually needs and that's might be what they initially thought they wanted for their student so sometimes it's about um, everybody learning to adjust to what that word inclusion can mean um, the other thing I think is especially for children who may not be very expressive with their language um it's important for educators to not have that assumption that because the child can't verbally express things, they, they're not understanding what's going on around them. Um, so I think as a family, you'll often understand that the best. And so it's important to be um, encouraging the educators to have high expectations that they don't want the other students doing for your student things that they can do for mm -hmm. themselves, especially if they've been doing it independently for some time. You don't want to go backwards um, around that. So, Tanya, in some situations um, we may only have the choice of one school. Mm. Perhaps we live in a small community and there might just be one school where we live. Um, perhaps mm. there is only one school that our child can be um, enrolled into. Um, perhaps we are a family who do not want our children going to a faith-based school, mm. so there really is that only that one catchment school um, mm. that's available. When we only have one school available to us or one school that our child can go to, there can be a bit of that fear, right, that there's, they're not, it's not going to be the right place or if there's any problems, there's no other choices. Um, what are some of your experiences in that sort of space? Like, mm -hmm. Have you ever come across that situation? Yeah, often. And I think for all of the reasons that you just mentioned, but particularly Unfortunately, even though the laws do state that people can't discriminate, unfortunately we do hear from a lot of families every year around what we call gatekeeping. So whilst a school might not outright come out and say, no, we won't accept your child, they might give strong messaging that, well, this is all we can offer or, you know, we can't do this for your child or we can't do that or, yeah, whatever the case might be. Um, so sometimes parents get to you know this time of year or you know November December and are starting to panic because they really their their only option had where they have had a definite yes your student is welcome to come here and you know we can enroll them tomorrow is often that local catchment school 
And sometimes parents might not, for whatever reason, feel like that was where they thought their child might go or where they necessarily wanted to send their child. So sometimes there's a bit of grief and loss associated with, you know, letting go of where you thought your child might have been going or where you wanted them to go. And maybe the local catchment school, whilst it's your catchment school, might not actually be the most convenient location. You know, sometimes your catchment school is not necessarily the one that you live the closest to or is on your best route to work or whatever, wherever else you might need to go. So um, I think it's all about making the most of what you can. So there's lots you can do and maybe we should talk about that now around preparing for that transition to school. Um, And even if it's not, you know, ticking all the boxes that you thought you wanted to tick or that you thought you had to tick, sometimes it's about letting, giving yourself a bit of credit as a parent to go, okay, well, I still know my child the best. I know what we need to do to make this transition as successful as possible and just build, work on building that relationship with the school. So something that we talk about whenever we sort of start a new school year or a new school um, is a vision statement um, for our young person um, with Down syndrome. So what's a vision statement? Yeah, there's lots of different templates around, including there's, I think there's even one on our website and there's certainly ones we can put links to, but it's essentially just a bit of a one-page profile of your young person. And I you know, it could be, like you said, right from starting childcare, but it can also be really handy moving into that high school space. Anytime that your your loved one is moving into some kind of new setting where maybe they won't be as well known. And particularly if your young person isn't able to communicate very easily on their own as yet, um, it's helpful for those people who are still getting to know them. So um, it'll often start with a little bit of information about your child, you know, their preferences, their likes, their strengths, their challenges, just some dot points in one little sort of square. And then it might move on to, um, there's usually like an overarching statement too, like what your vision is. It's usually like a sentence or two of what your vision for your child's life is. And just off the top of my head, I'm just making this up completely, but it might be, you know, our vision is for Johnny to live a rich, fulfilling life surrounded by many, you know, um, diverse you know, acquaintances and for him to live independently and work in his local community, something to that um, endeavour. So there's no right or wrong. It's really more about as a family, you know, what are you working towards? What are your hopes and dreams for your your young person? And that's really helpful because I think sometimes, particularly when a school hasn't had a lot of experience supporting a student with an intellectual disability, people get really hung up on the differences in the academic ability and um, particularly when people start talking about IQ test results and things like that. But for for most families, it's actually just about they want their young person to have all of those rich social connections and learning experiences. Like even if their learning is at a different level to the other students in the class, they want their young person to be a lifelong learner as well. It'll just be at in a different way and with adjustments and all of the things that teachers are beautifully trained to do. But it's actually about putting that context around. We definitely want our young person knowing and being known in their local community. And so sometimes when schools realise that and see that shift, it's like, oh, okay, like that stuff is really important to you too. Okay, we can definitely be, you know, building all of that into what we do. So that it has the overarching vision, it has the dot points around strengths, interests, that kind of thing. And then it'll have um, 
a couple of other sections. One will be what works really well. So that's where as families, you can put some dot points around the strategies. And sometimes your therapists or other people in your child's life can help you come up with, well, what are the ways that, you know, help me, whether it's to learn or um, follow instructions or even just um, ask for help, you know, all of those sorts of things that you need to do in a learning environment. And then it will also have um, what doesn't work for me and or what I'm still working on. And so if your young person's starting out in the school setting, maybe maybe toileting is something that they're still working on or maybe um, verbal communication might be something that, you know, requires some support through a device or other sort of strategies. So that's definitely where you want to set really clear understanding. So if, especially if a supply teacher comes in for the day and, you know, especially if it's only the first few weeks of school and even the regular teacher doesn't know your child very well yet, if you've got that one-page thing that's someone fairly new or less familiar to your child, even if it's the librarian who only sees them once a week or once a fortnight, if they've got something that they can as a go-to straight away, um, particularly if the little one's struggling with 10 transition points in the day, that's a particularly good thing to put in there. Like if you know that music helps me transition back in from playground or, you know, um, yeah, the using visual supports really helps me to understand what comes next, whatever the case might be. So that vision statement is really powerful. Um, and it's really proactive and we always encourage people to do it well ahead of time. It's not the time for bringing out a vision statement isn't when you've been requested to be at the school for that emergency meeting because behaviours have really spiralled a little bit. Um, definitely that can help you get back in track, but that's not the time to start vision planning. Really, we want all this stuff done well ahead of that transition, whatever the setting is. And we want those statements revisited regularly. So when you're having those regular meetings with the school or the classroom teacher or even the um, reviewing the if your child's on an individual education plan, something like that, that's a really good time to bring those documents back out. And then every year, review them, see what's changed. You know, what are the areas that your child might have mastered now? And what are the other things that might unexpectedly be, oh, we didn't realise that was going to be a thing. And it would be really good to involve your young person, especially as they head towards yes. those high school years, um, yes. to be involved in their vision statement as well. So they have that, Absolutely. that, have that ownership over their own strengths and their own weaknesses and Absolutely. You know, their own vision for their future as well. Yeah, and if they find those meeting environments too overwhelming, because sometimes young people do, especially if they absolutely understand the meeting is about them, you can still do that outside of the meeting. If, if having the child at the meeting is too overwhelming for them, then you can still work with them around, hey, we're putting the information together for Mrs Smith for next year. We want to tell her what you really love doing. What do you love doing, you know? What do you like? What don't you like, you know, in terms of what helps you when you're learning in class? The student is often really, really good at identifying what does not work. <laughs> I don't like it when, you know. Um, yeah, so I think that's a really good point. Mm. And I guess as we go into high school as well, that relationship with that one teacher also changes because you'll have multiple yes. teachers, um, multiple transitions during a day. Um, so it does take mm. longer for teachers to get to know your young person as well um, mm. and all those things that we've talked about that we include in the vision statement. So do you think that a vision statement would be a good way to introduce mm. your young person in those sort of... Definitely. I think that's the perfect example for the high school setting because, like you say, there's there's pros and cons isn't there to everything so like obviously in those primary school settings it's awesome when that one teacher can have such a depth of a relationship 
with their class, but then sometimes that relationship isn't overly great anyway. And and also as the child, yeah, gets older and older and then off to high school, it's not going to be the same. They might only have that class two or three times a week for 40 minutes at a time, you know, with different areas of the school with different people all the time. And so getting used to that frequent changing is tricky and it's hard to expect the child to have to advocate for their needs in multiple different classes throughout the day. So that's where a vision statement is so good. And then it's again really, really good once they get to that year 10 sort of level when they're starting to do that planning for subject selection for seniors and and you know, what they're interested in doing beyond the school gates. Um, and so that vision statement's really helpful, particularly if you feel like your student's being sort of encouraged down one particular path and you, you want to keep that vision for something else, you know, on the agenda. It's That's where it's really useful because in those meetings with schools, sometimes, I, I can only speak for myself, but I know when I had meetings with my children's, you know, school staff over the years, you can go in there with thinking you know what you wanted to say and then you can just get really flummoxed in the middle of it all and get overwhelmed. And I think having something written down in front of you that you can really refer back to um, is just the biggest service you can do to your young person if, if they can't be there advocating for themselves alongside you. And I guess as we move into high school as well, we as parents need to have those relationships with a lot of different teachers. Mm. Um, so really at the beginning of high school is really getting a sense of who the best teacher is to speak to about whatever issue is coming up. So whether that would be the home group teacher, whether that would be the year level coordinator, yeah. um, whether it would be, you know, one of the people that support them emotionally, um, the teacher that is the classroom teacher for that particular subject. Mm-hmm. Um, it does get a little bit more tricky, um, especially as we move away from that one teacher that we can sort of go to for everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's at the start of the year, Really getting a sense of who the best person is to go for this yeah. particular issue um, or just having that one mm. connection point, I guess, and having that really strong connection point to that schooling environment. Yeah, and I think that's very, very, very true, Isabel. And I think the other thing to keep in mind too is that um, making sure that the communication stays positively focused and, like, there's always going to be those inevitable times we've all had that call from school when things have gone a bit pear-shaped and we, <laughs> we have to have that urgent conversation. But I guess it's about communicating your vision to the school that you don't just want to hear from them when things are tricky and it is about agreeing at the beginning of the year what's a realistic amount of feedback throughout the term that we can receive and it doesn't have to be meetings all of the time it could just be you know is it once a month there's an email from whoever that most appropriate person is updating so that if things have snowballed a little bit unfortunately one of the things I hear a lot I'm not sure if you do too is um the first the parent hears of the fact that there's been months of you know so-called challenging behaviors is when they get asked to come and pick their child up and perhaps they don't come back for a few days or, you know, whether it's a formal or informal kind of suspension. Mm -hmm. And then the parent finds out at that point, you know, the school will often say things like, we didn't want to tell you, we didn't want to put too much on you, but actually it's been a problem for like weeks or months now. And I think it's about saying to the school, I want to know about things proactively, Mm -hmm. like so that we can get on top of them earlier but I also don't just want to hear from you when things are going badly I want to know what's working well as well so that we can incorporate that into you know new vision statements and and we want every student to foster some sort of sense of capability and capacity building and self-esteem so we don't want 
the messaging just being, mm. you know, what, what they're not good at, but we want to know what, what they are interested in, what they do enjoy doing, because that can also help shape life beyond school as well. Like if, you know, if you didn't know that they absolutely light up in art class because they can't come home or won't come home and tell you that, you, you wouldn't maybe know that that's an interest or an activity outside of school that you could potentially join other groups for and make new connections. And, yeah, so I think it's about setting that expectation that, of course, I'll be responsive when things get tricky, but I also want to know about the not-so-tricky times. So. And that transition out of school as well, we sort of need that knowledge and we need that feedback um, because we know that that transition, especially for our young people um, with Down syndrome or just an intellectual disability in general, um, can be quite a tricky transition and that's where we see a lot of mental health issues pop up when those, mm. you know, those routines that they're used to for so mm. many years all of a sudden are no longer there and they're having to mm. find a new routine, new friendships, you know, they're not seeing mm. the people that they've often seen. So if we have the ability to, you know, join another art group or mm. join a book group or whatever it is that mm. the interest is of that young person, um, mm. then that can also ease that transition as well and help, you know, parents and carers and support workers really understand what it is that that young person wants to be doing, um, especially if they do find it harder to verbalise um, what, yeah. their, what their wants are and what their needs are. Absolutely. I think you've just hit the nail on the head there with we spend so much time transitioning our young people into school or into the next grade or into this or from class to class and we forget about how much work also has to go into the transition out of <laughs> this as well and that's probably a whole other podcast but um yes I think that's why that communication is really important all the way through school um because yes there's a set curriculum that we all have to work to and that but if we don't know what it is that lights up somebody's world then it's really hard to help encourage them into that and continue to build on their strengths. And every person involved with a young person has a different understanding of what their mm. what their wants are and what they're they you know what they're interested in. Yeah. So we've talked a little bit earlier about um, choosing a school and how uh, you know if you do have other children already you you would have navigated that before so you know in a lot of ways it is similar you know you have to think about all those practical things as a family like you know if you ideally want all your children in the one school, then, you know, why not pursue that? And But then every child has unique strengths and differences. So, you know, finding the one school that works for everybody is tricky. Um, but what one thing that I think it's remiss if we don't point out is that unlike perhaps what you've experienced with your other children so far, there will be some different processes involved when um, a student has a disability and that... There are a range of different acronyms and, I mean, we can we could probably talk about some of them now, but the reality is that most different schools call these um, meetings and, and plans and processes all different things. But essentially what it means is that when a student has a disability, um, in order for the school to be able to make adjustments to the, the curriculum so that your student can engage, you know, in it as, as best they can, working on the same content as their as their peers in the classroom, even if that's at a different level. Often there's a lot of meetings that need to take place to um, just check in, you know, especially if the student is on um, an adjusted curriculum or an individualised curriculum. Some schools 
have things called individualized education plans. Sometimes it's an individualized curriculum plan. Sometimes it's a personalized learning plan. There are then there are other areas too, like behavior support plans. <laughs> there's there's so many different things that um, can be relevant for for students with disabilities. Having said that, not all students with disabilities also need all of those either. So. And that might also change across your child's schooling, depending on where they're at and what subjects they're doing and, and that kind of thing. So I think one thing that I find, Isabel, that parents are often shocked at is the amount of going up to schools and having a meeting and thinking that meeting is something and figuring out halfway through the meeting it's actually something else. And, yeah, do you hear that from families too? Like, Yeah, meetings are a part of their experiences um, during the schooling time and the, there is a lot of them um, and it could be more than, you know, some of their typical peers. Mm. And what, what I guess, some of the advice we could give to families, um, mm. even though every situation is different, I guess first and foremost I'd like to say that there's a really excellent service called Community Resource Unit um, or CREW. Um, and we'll put their details in the show notes. They've got some fantastic resources for Queensland families, um, specifically around navigating the education world and um, when your student has a disability and lots of resources around advocacy and they do lots of free events and, and courses too. So we always say to families it's always a good idea to – and they've got a fantastic book called I Choose Inclusion. So that has a lot of um, great tips and resources and and across all the different school settings too, whether that's state, um, private or faith-based or independent. Um, but I guess in terms of those meetings and processes, it's really more about it's okay as a parent to ask for some advance notice. So you don't have to agree to something at the school gate and, you know, have that rushed conversation while you're trying to manage very tired children or lots of noise and distraction. Um, and it's okay to, I guess, use your newness to this setting and say, look, I'm still getting my head around all of this. Can you please explain to me in an email what this meeting that's coming up is about? And ideally, if you could send me through an agenda of what we're likely to discuss. Like, don't feel like you can't ask for that clarity. Um, what are some other tips that we, we suggest to families? I know something we often say is um, if you're getting the sense that it's a really tricky meeting, that they're going to start talking about some, you know, really sensitive stuff. Don't feel you have to do those meetings alone. Um, by the same token, if you feel really confident and okay about that, and sometimes you might not have anyone you can call upon at short notice, that's okay too. Um, Finding out who's going to be at the meeting as well. Yeah, yeah. So that you know who's there and so that you're not sort of surprised, I guess, by seeing someone that you maybe weren't expecting to see. Perhaps you weren't expecting to see the principal. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, it can lead to some feelings that, you know, you're being yes. treated unfairly or something is a lot yeah. more serious than what you are aware of. Yeah. Um, so if you if you know that somebody is coming to that meeting, mm. that can help alleviate some of those concerns as well. Yeah. And knowing your um, knowing your rights and and like knowing the legislation like that, I think that's, again, where reading through that book, I Choose Inclusion, is really excellent because it steps out. It's just so easy for families to understand. And you can just read the section that's relevant to where you're at at that point in time. You don't have to necessarily sit down and read it from front to, to end. But um, going into those meetings and especially if you're in the meeting and you start getting a gut sense that, oh, 
they're asking for this and this doesn't feel right. Um, and also don't feel like you have to agree to anything in the meeting. Like um, it's perfectly okay to say, I, I think I might just go away from it today and just have a little bit think about this, talk about it with you know, whoever it is that you choose to talk about it with. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll respond to you by email in the morning or, you know, what have you. Um, similarly, don't feel like you have to sign anything if it's especially if you haven't had a chance to read it, if like if a document gets put to you in the meeting and you're just asked to sign off on it, um, unless it is something that you've been collaborating it on for weeks and you, you're reading over and you're thinking, yep, this is exactly what we were talking about. Mm -hmm. if, it, if you don't really understand what's in that document, then, yeah, come, come home with a copy of it, talk about it with someone that you trust or, you know, contact someone, whether it's ourselves or, some, or another group that you can get a little bit more feedback on. Mm. really going into that meeting and you know having that really the, a good mindset um mm. I think that's important as well mm. um people can pick up very quickly um when you're upset about something um and it can put you a bit off as well definitely definitely it's yeah it's very true and and it's okay if you feel like the school are asking something of you that you just can't do or you don't know it's okay to say that um sometimes what i do feel particularly where behavior has become an issue mm -hmm. um families like you know get invited to this meeting the school will tell them we need to talk about this they'll they'll name all the incidents they'll name everything they've tried and then they'll say to the parent well what can you suggest that we try mm -hmm. um and i guess you are definitely the natural expert of your mm -hmm. child. Yeah. Um, no one doubts that. But you're not necessarily a fully trained allied health therapist or you're you're not even necessarily seeing the behaviours that they're telling you about in the home setting, you know, because what happens in a whole big group of children may not be what you're seeing at home. So you could certainly share strategies if you feel comfortable, if you have any that you think, you know, well, you can always say, well, this is what we find helpful when we're struggling with transitions in the home setting. But that doesn't mean that they'll transfer to a school setting. But also it's perfectly okay to say, I'm sorry, but we don't see that at home. So I'm wondering, you know, would you like to speak to, you know, our speech therapist or our psychologist or whoever might or might not be involved in your little one's life or, you know, find out where else they've sought support from within their own school setting and also, you know, um, have they reached out to other services? There are lots of services out there that are funded to support schools based on different, you know, um, needs that different students might have. So it's okay to say, you know, what else has been tried? Um, yeah, or I might need to have a think about that and get back to you. Like don't feel pressured to have to come up with the solutions for a setting that you're not actually mm. a part of on a daily basis. Yep. And I think it's important as well when you go away from that meeting is to note down what was said and mm. your understanding of the situation as well and what was discussed mm. in the meeting um, just so you have something back to look back on as well mm. in the future, especially if another meeting comes up on the same topic. Mm. Um, having that sort of paper trail can be quite useful. Absolutely, absolutely. And if, if anything is a bit of an out of the ordinary, we're going to try this, we're going to do that, ask for it to be put in an email. Mm. Um, just so that, like you say, there's something to go back to, even if it's more around if there's lots of staff involved, not everyone might be on the same page with that, how that, you know, issue is going to be addressed. So I guess this is the time of year where um, 
Usually, hopefully, you now know where your young person is heading off to in the new year. And often the questions we get at this point of the year are, what can I do to really prepare? Whether that is heading off to high school, like what can we do? Whether it's primary school. Um, And this might seem like an obvious one, but I think once you've gotten to choosing the school, have you thought about all the other practicalities around that? So if your child's in primary school or going into primary school, um, you might have chosen a school and been accepted to school. Have you looked into vacation care or before and after school care if that's something your family's going to need? I think sometimes if you're brand new to the school system, you don't always realise that being accepted at a school does not necessarily guarantee you a place in the after school care service. So usually there are far less places in that than there are in the actual school. So just make sure you've got everything lined up. If you are a working parent, you are going to require that. Um, and even if you're not a working parent, if for whatever reason you just want to access that, you know, a few afternoons a week or vacation periods or what have you. Um, so make sure you've sort of thought ahead and looked at all of that. Um, and even just the, I think we're so used to often, if you've come from the childcare setting before you're going into a primary school, And even in a primary school setting, heading into a high school, you're often used to being able to park really close or there's a drop zone and there's lots of teachers on staff who can, you know, that that whole drop-off pickup scenario is quite scaffolded in the early years. Um, High school can be different with that. And if your young person isn't able to, you know, use public transport alone at that age or, um, you know, if they can't go home and be on their own, then obviously there's a whole other level of planning that you might need um, to be mindful of. And you, it, it's also about being mindful of the young person's dignity because not too many other 12 and 13-year-olds have their mum or dad or, you know, someone walking in the gate to walk them out. So it's about if your young person does need support, how do we do that in a supportive way but also a dignified way and in a way that, you know, um, just doesn't leave them inadvertently feeling different to their peers um, at a time in their developmental life where they re- let that peer connection is really, really important. So um, there's no one right or wrong way to do that. At the end of the day, for some young people, they still need a level of supervision around safety at that age that means that, you know, that that direct support is needed. But how do we do that in a way that's, you know, as um, inclusive as, pro- as possible rather than making them feel even more different? Um, so there's that. And I guess it is about everything's new and different at that point. So a high school can often be a much larger like setting mm-hmm. and with multiple entrances and exits and um, it, it might be about in that school holiday period really doing lots of drive-bys, lots of walking through, like lots of really figuring out and even this term before the term ends, finding out like you might think in the quiet school holiday period, I found the perfect place and then discover that first week it's actually the worst place ever <laughs> to be picking up and dropping off. So, you know, that's where the wisdom of people who've gone ahead a view at that school could be really helpful. Um, And if your child's a lot younger, it could be around, um, unlike in that childcare, sort of very scaffolded, very closed-in environment where all the gates are locked and everything, it could be around really getting your young person used to the fact that, you know, it's not a very locked-down environment when they go off to prep or or to the big playground in, in primary school, you know, when they get out of that prep to year two sort of, Sometimes there's a separate play space for them. And if your young person's moving into the older primary school years, it's about 
how do you balance that freedom mm. <laughs> with um, with whatever support needs they might need? And then there's also things like, um, well, some of the practical things, like mm. what are some of the things that we know little people, if you're going to have to focus on just a few things because that, that school holiday period is only short, mm. realistically, you can't bombard them and expect them to become independent overnight. So maybe choose a few key things mm, lunch boxes i think are a big one being able to open your own lunch box and mm-hmm. being able to navigate your own food um knowing what they're going to eat as well especially in different settings um really understand like even practicing eating on the floor because in a yes. lot of um, school settings they're going to eat outside even on a concrete ground mm. which can be quite different um to what they're used to especially if they've been to childcare and had that table and chair situation happening and I guess being aware that this could be an issue ahead of time as well is good um, Mm. so that you can go to the teacher when you start when they start school and say hey we've been Mm. practicing it's not going well Mm. you know perhaps we can use a rug or something like that or you know find some some kind of other um, eating arrangement Um, yeah yeah and if there are some really legitimate medical reasons like you know if your little one aspirates or you know has a lot of swallowing issues then it is very important to be clear about that with the school because it might not be safe for them to sit and eat, you know, like that. And then then there's the flow on of if they're not getting enough nutrients into them in those short little lunch breaks and they're getting really tired and hung- hungry or hangry by the end of the yeah. day, then that it's just that knock-on effect that it has. So it might be that you need to greet them at the gate with some sort of high-nutrient snack that goes straight in to get them through the rest of that afternoon. And that's just a prep thing, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Most preppies I know required a little bit of food. Um, yeah. Even I know some mums would keep food in the car so that when the little person jumped in the car they would get fed. Yeah. Um, and then by the time they got home they were ready to have a chat because they weren't going to be talking while they were hungry. <laughs> no, no. And even though sometimes the school day is shorter than maybe a childcare day that they might have been used to, it's a different type of so much more energy and attention required on these, you know, sort of tabletop tasks and it's less play-based. And so, yeah, I think you're right. They, it, It's hard work being a preppy. <laughs> yeah. And it's important not to underestimate just how um, learning a new skill or learning a new environment or new routines mm-hmm. and how taxing that can be on a, and on a person, whether that be, mm-hmm. you know, a preppy or heading into high school, mm-hmm. um, leaving school, even starting a new job, um, you know, those types of things Absolutely. can be quite taxing on us. And that's where I think as a parent it's really good to advocate for what you know will help reduce that taxing so you know visual supports is one of the things our education team you know highly highly recommend we know that people with an intellectual disability that short-term working memory that ability to hold in their head all the information about what's happening in that morning routine or afternoon routine if that can be you know as much as possible if those sort of things can be put as visual schedules on their desks or um even just the way people communicate you know as you get more tired through the day too your ability to form the words and choose the words and you know communicate your needs and and how you're feeling and stuff um yeah any way we can ease some of that pressure on trying to hold that all together for yourself especially at you know five or six years of age um and even for older students too we we know that 65 percent of the population are are visual learners so we know that these strategies won't just benefit your young person Mm -hmm. they'll benefit so many people in the class there'll be students in the class who might have a you know first language is other than english you know um other students for other reasons would also, you know, um, really, I guess, benefit from those visual reminders of what, what's expected of them, 
what the day is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Definitely. What about before we finish up, Isabel, I guess we've talked today a little bit about all the proactive or as many of the proactive things as we can think of and the things we hear from families about all the time. What about even when all the best laid plans have been put in place and you've had lots of proactive meetings throughout the year but things are just getting to a point where it's not life at school's not going so well um what what do we generally recommend in that situation reaching out um to organizations like down syndrome in queensland um mm-hmm. i think letting us know what's happening and so that we can discuss the situation and then get um mm-hmm. you know let you know about any services that are available um mm-hmm. maybe outside of our organization as well um we do have the education team um, mm-hmm. that the school can reach out to if they do need any support mm-hmm. um to make their environments more inclusive um and there's obviously other higher level advocacy mm. groups and things like that um, mm. that can assist as well yeah and also there's often formal complaints processes within schools or the department of education or whatever school system that your student is part of as well um which again we we or another service that offers that advocacy support could help work alongside and ideally it's it's best if we can get those things resolved before having to get to that level but sometimes unfortunately um, things don't go to plan and I guess the messages don't feel alone in that. Um, we've talked about a lot of things today, Isabella, and we've segued all over the place and it's probably <laughs> a little bit, you know, um, hopefully not too confronting or overwhelming, but I guess we just wanted to pull together some of what we hear on a regular basis um, in the hope that it might help those of you heading off to a new or different school setting next year. The other thing I guess I would like to add, other than we'll be putting lots of links in the show notes, is that we are having our biannual parent education conference in March 2023. So it'll be Tuesday the 14th of March and the details are up on our website already and we'll put that link in the notes as well. If you are at the point of wanting to find out a little bit more about many of the kinds of areas that we've talked about today, um, that's a most of the day, I want to say all day, but it's really more 9.30 to 2pm conference. It'll be held here in Brisbane for the first time in a few years. Everything's been so online. But if you can't get to Brisbane or can't make it on the day, there is the option to register and you will receive a recording of the sessions afterwards. And it's a free event. So um, I guess we would encourage people to look into that further if if they're interested. Thanks, Isabel. (laughs) Thank you, Tanya. You have been listening to the Now and the Future podcast. For more information about this episode and many other topics related to Down syndrome, please visit the Down syndrome Queensland website at downsyndrome.org.au slash QRD. Down syndrome Queensland, supporting people with Down syndrome now and into the future.